How's it going? Welcome to Dirty Real Estate Show, where we provide bite-sized actionable tips and hacks along with interviews of industry experts to help you elevate your land investment journey. My name is Eric Cole. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Marshall. Let's go. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Dirty Real Estate Podcast. Uh, I'm Eric Ko and got my co-host here, Mike Marshall. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm very excited. We got this. Uh, we have a special treat for everybody. Uh, we, have a, we have a guest on. She specializes in redevelopment. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it. And I'll let her explain everything. But I'm super excited. I'm super excited about this. So without further ado, welcome, Katie. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm excited course. myself because I get to kind of probably geek out with a little bit with you. I spent um, 15 plus years in planning and zoning. And a part of that was in like redevelopment and historic preservation and these kind of things. And so I'm definitely excited to hear what you have to say. I'm, I'm really interested. God bless you. Hopefully we'll get along the whole time. I don't always get along when I'm talking to city planners. I know, right? I completely understand. I completely understand. Mike, Mike is a special one, so he gets along with everybody. <laughs> well, before we get started, Katie, you wanna you wanna kind of tell your story a little bit so our listener can kind of have an idea of your background and everything. Sure. So I grew up in a family where my parents were entrepreneurs. Um, They were, you know, after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, really, they were just self-employed. But I had very much an entrepreneurial spirit growing up, but they were both in real estate. And we're in Texas in the 80s and early 90s, which was when the savings and loans crash happened. It was very hard on the real estate world. And my parents financially had a very difficult time during that period. So I never wanted to go into real estate. And then um, I graduated from college. I went right into the corporate world. It was a time when people were hiring so easily. And so I felt very special. Turns out they were just looking for people who could fog a mirror and jumped right into the corporate world and totally disregarded my dreams of being an entrepreneur. And I did that for about seven years and then had my son. It was like, I want to move back to my hometown. So we transitioned back to my hometown and I went to work for a startup bank and realized within probably about oh, I don't know, 48 hours. It was a disaster. It was probably (laughs) the wrong decision. And so um, fortunately, though, I had a really awesome customer and um, put it out there that I might want to do something different. And they're like, well, they were a startup company. And they said, I don't know what we'd have you do, but let's brainstorm. Hey, we're doing the real estate development. You want to do that? I was like, I don't know anything about it, but if you'll have me, I'll do it. And Mm -hmm. so I jumped into that with both feet and actually got to learn a lot about the commercial real estate development side, but the product that we were producing was for people with Alzheimer's and dementia, and they want it to be very small and like a home. So even though it followed like commercial zoning and it followed commercial construction, um, it had to have this real residential feel. So it gave me a taste kind of of both sides of that, um, of the construction process. And so I learned that I loved it and I learned what to avoid And so from there, we sold the company. I got like one year of runway of income. And I said, you know what? I'm going to bet on myself with my one year of income and see if I'm still making money at the end of the year. And if so, I'm going to keep doing this on my own. If not, I'll just go back and get another job. So I jumped out, started investing in real estate. Um, Initially, was just doing like flipping houses. And then that's involved into our passion and love for developing real estate in our downtown market. And so now that's what we focus on. We do redevelopments downtown. Oh, that's great. That's really great. And, and are you um, primarily focused um, on in your town or are you kind of branched out from there or, or what's your focus, I guess? Yeah, at the moment, it's definitely our downtown. Um, we it had started to see a revitalization like a lot of different downtowns did. And so we were kind of in on the ground level. It's not that we're opposed to going anywhere else. It's just that we know our market so well that we don't have the risk of being the dumb money going into the market. But as our market gets developed or our downtown gets developed out, like every project gets a little bit harder because the city gets a little bit tighter with what they're willing to stretch on and allow. And it makes you realize like the amazing honeymoon 
building phase we were in when we came in and did like the first new construction of a house in our downtown in my lifetime. And one of the first two or three, I guess, new construction um, loft rentals downtown. So the city was just like, what do you want? How can we help? And we were so ignorant. We didn't know that wasn't normal. (laughs) And so now as those rules tighten up, it's like, you know, we should find similar type cities that are kind of on the cusp. They've already invested some money in it. They've already started some development, but they're still just eager for people with some experience who can do a little bit bigger project coming into those cities. So we're trying to identify what those cities look like and what a similar city might be. How do you look for these type of cities to kind of go into? Yeah. Okay. So for us, we like kind of our size. So we're smaller and that we're probably 250 Bryan College stations where I'm at, Bryan College Station, Texas, which is the home of Texas A&M. And we're probably about 250,000 combined. But then we have the layer of about another 100,000 students. So students, especially in that proportion to your population, definitely adds a different dynamic to a city. It What it does is it flattens booms and busts because the government university is the primary um, employer here. So we don't have super sharp rises in um, prices and appreciation, but we always have steady growth in population. And so over the long term, we kind of like that steadiness. So when we first started doing developments downtown, we thought we knew what people wanted, but we didn't know if we were just dreaming and hoping. So we actually commissioned a study to be done by the Texas Real Estate Research Center that's actually associated with the university. And they went out and they sought cities that were similar to ours throughout the state of Texas in size, in the status of where they were being developed and looked at what kind of companies off um, business downtown and what kind of residents live downtown. And so we already kind of have a pool of what those are. But basically, we're looking for a similar demographic with a good, strong, steady employee and with a city where this they have already started investing. So when we started, our city had already committed $20 million in redevelopment into downtown. So we knew that they were behind it and they were going to make sure it was successful. So those are the kind of things that we'd look for. I see. That's really great. I mean, I think if nobody caught it, though, if people don't know in our, in our listeners, you know, A&M is a huge real estate program, right? Like they have a huge real estate development program. Um, it's this constant um, battle between them and UT in terms of like the graduates that come out. Like, Cause I worked for Austin for a while and like, that is exactly what happens, you know? And so the point to that is, is more about the fact that you have an amazing resource there at A&M. And so people like understand too, that also, you know, what Katie's talking about is that really having like boots on the ground a little bit, having your, your kind of roots in an, an area to a certain degree um, is really, really helpful, or at least having others that are, um, because getting that that pulse in terms of what's going on at the city level is going to be really, really important, understanding what that investment is. And one of the things that I've seen happen is that cities will actually engage in some sort of redevelopment plan. California, they're called specific plans, where they'll just identify a very specific geographic area within that city and saying, hey, here's the boundaries of our specific plan area. And within that, what is it going to look like? What are the land uses going to be? What is the architecture going to look like? all of those other things. And that's another way that I've kind of been able to identify those jurisdictions too, or those that have actually engaged in those plans. And so just like Katie was saying, jurisdictions that have spent money is is a really big indicator. Follow the money, right? That's right. And you know, that's an excellent point that every city has a master plan. Mm -hmm. And in that master plan, they identify where they see population growing and the parts of areas that they want are the part of the town they want to redevelop. And when I was redeveloping for assisted living facility, we were in a a great town outside of Houston and we were trying to put a new facility in and it was going to require rezoning. And um, the, the city didn't want it and the neighborhood didn't want it. But we knew like it was the right thing and we fought and we lost and we lost all of that feasibility money and upfront money. And really the lesson that I walked away from that with is it doesn't matter really if you're right or wrong. What matters is that you're on the same team as the city 
because they can make mm-hmm. your life e- easy or they can make your life a nightmare. But ultimately, they really do get to decide. And so that was the biggest lesson I learned as a real estate developer is find your passion and then align it with what your city's passion is. That way you're both pulling in the same direction. Wow. Massive, yeah. massive learning lesson in that for people that are listening. Because so, Katie, it's it's interesting because in the whole world of land investing, you know, I come at it from this planning and zoning and entitlement perspective. And so not a lot of people have that experience. And so when you say these kind of things, it really resonates with me. And I always love to hear it from somebody else because it's extremely important for people to understand that. Again, whether you think you're right or wrong or whether it's a good use or good project has very little <laughs> importance at the end of the day. Unfortunately, it really is about what the city actually envisions because you want the city to be on your side because you want them to be the advocate for your project. And if they're going to advocate for your project, then you're going to be in a much better position. No, for Absolutely. sure. Assistant living is so funny you brought that up because I we just bought two, we're building two four plexes right now um, by Las Vegas. And I'm thinking about turning to an assistant living. So maybe I can, I'll reach out to you after. We can talk yeah. more about it. Yeah. Feel free. Yeah, we were in that market for about seven years. So yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. My insight. Yeah. yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah, right. So this. yeah. No, I think I think that's an important lesson there. I mean, for sure. We kind of talked about this before. Like, you know, I think coming from um like these rural land flipping type of business, um, you know, we jump around a lot. Right. You know, we go from one county to another county and we literally just look for numbers. But, you know, we always talk about this in this podcast because it's more about value add. So we tell people to really focus in one area. Right. And just go deep. Right. Mm -hmm. And just understand everybody, meet everybody in that city, in that town, you know, and then like, what, what are they saying? Like the riches are in the niches. Right. So that's so true. And, you know, the reason that we're probably so niched down is that, well, we're dumb. And so (laughs) the reality is, is that the code is so complicated and it changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So from city to county, from every city, from state to state. And so it is there's so many nuances that it's not like you can read code and be like, okay, now I understand what people want, because Just because it happened in your last project, it may have been okay simply because of some minor detail. So then you assume, oh, well, when I go do this project, I'm going to apply that same detail. And then you find out, oh, no, you can't do that here. Like, for instance, we're doing a redevelopment right now. This is, you know, we've done several now. And we're building a small apartment complex. It's on a road. It has a wide right of way, but the road is 18 feet wide in downtown. We have a driveway that's one way. It's 15 feet. Looks great. We've gone through three or four rounds of comments with the city. And then we just got our comments back last week that said, oh, sorry for the late comment from the fire marshal. But he says, we require a 20 foot road for our a fire truck to go down. So you can either widen our public road by two feet, or you need to widen your drive aisle to 26 feet. If 26 feet, or we could lower our eaves and go 20 feet. And I'm like, who knows that? Like, even though <laughs> this is like our fifth project, like the nuance is so, it's just such a detail that it's hard to be an expert on code, but it can get a whole lot easier to be an expert on your niche. So that's why I think when you're buying land and you don't know what the end use is going to be, it's way harder. But if you have a vision for how people are going to use that land, then if you understand their end use, then it's easier to market to the person who's actually going to use it. If you just say, hey, I have land for sale, well, what is that? Is that for a retail strip center? Is that for an apartment? Do they allow mixed use? Is that for ag use? And so really understanding the end user helps you know or go to the city and say what can and can't be done within this bucket. And so for us, we are the end user. And so we we love to buy the land and accumulate it because we know what the end product is. So we're looking for properties that fit with that end product, which is a little bit reversed from people who are just flipping land, but the concept still applies. If you don't know the end use, to me, it's a risky purchase. If you can understand the end use and you know there's buyers, then the, the risk of buying that property goes way down. 
So I, I, no, mean, I feel like sure. I've been screaming that for like the last like three or four years to a lot of land investors to understand that. And I think, unfortunately, I'll just be, uh, I might come across a little bit abrasive, but I think it is doing what you're explaining. It requires commitment. It requires um, a lot harder work. It really requires you like delving into the details, you know, and um, quite honestly, that's just not something that a lot of people are willing to do, you know, but the thing is, if you just uncover one more layer of it, you're just going to, you know, uncover a lot more opportunity um, in an overall bigger picture. And so I try to you know, kind of convey the same thing is that, you know, flipping land and just selling land as this, you know, blank palette, it doesn't really work as well as opposed to you being able to sell the vision, you know? And so if, even if you're able to say, look, this property is currently agricultural, but if you went and rezoned it, you can do a residential development, just like the one next door. And you, you can start speaking to what the possibility is. That's something that is a skill and a kind of a nuanced art form in the terms of being a developer. It's the difference between being a flipper and a developer. A developer is the one that has the vision and brings it to fruition. Yeah, well said. Yeah, yeah just, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's, it's like a house flipper and a house wholesaler, right? You know, the wholesaler needs to know the numbers in order for them to wholesale the property. It's the same thing with, in my opinion, it's the same thing with flipping land. You always need to know the end user. That way you can know your numbers and where to look for the properties and stuff like that, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, in Texas, it's probably different. So I can't speak to the whole country, but in in our projects, when you look at the total cost of the project, the land is a relatively small number compared sure. to the overall development. And so the price of the land isn't even the critical point. It's what restrictions, or even if it has the restrictions, what the appetite is of the city for be, to be lenient on those restrictions is where the real value is. So if someone brings me a piece of property, let's say it's in a different town that I'm not as familiar with, but if the land guy said, hey, by the way, we see what you do and we've talked to the city and they support the types of projects that you do, like they've added value that is useful to me, which is well above just the price of the land. Because on a, you know, $3 million, $5 million development on a piece of property that's $150,000, you know, $150 or $175 is not a big deal. But if I can't build my $3 million project, now that's a big deal. I have one question for you. Actually, there's probably two here, but do you go and entitle your projects yourself or would you go and buy projects if they are entitled from another investor? Do you do it either way or both? So almost everything that we have done, we've had to have entitled and we've done it ourselves. And we do it probably because we're super familiar with our city and we definitely have back um, backup plans, but we probably do it a little more risky. We'll close on a property without it being entitled how we want. Mm. Now we will have already talked to the city. We will have already understood whether or not the staff is going to support what we're wanting to develop. So that definitely decreases the risk. But like this fire marshal issue, had we not been able to work out the width of that drive lane, that would have killed the whole project. And so, you know, like we were just lucky enough that there's enough property there that there's room without decreasing the size of the building, which obviously decreases the revenue overall. So we go through the entitlement process ourselves. Um, our city is continuing downtown to do some overlay districts. So our zoning is changing constantly, but most of our projects end up being a planned development, which means it doesn't really fit under any zoning that's already Mm. established, which at first I thought I didn't like, but now I've learned it's better because I can get a little bit of this and I can restrict what they want that isn't impactful to me, but it's impactful to them. Once you go into the zoning, it's like a simple setback that, you know, they want a 15 foot setback and you need a 10 foot setback. It's just when it's all part of a PD, it just all gets addressed at once. Whenever it's already zoned that way, it's like every single exception is a different and new process and another fee. So I've kind of learned to like the uh, the planned development versus the typical zoning. So um, this is that's amazing. And I completely agree with you. And so kind of a little bit of definition lesson for some of our mm-hmm. listeners, too, is that 
So an overlay, you have your base zoning, you know, that applies within that zone. And so let's say you have like a C1 zone, like a general commercial zoning in any city. Then what they'll do is they'll apply an overlay zone that may just apply to a portion of that C1 zoning designation. And so what that overlay is, is another set of zoning criteria that applies to those properties within that overlay zone. And so it's just another kind of layer of regulations, but it's done for very specific reasons. Sometimes it's to concentrate certain land uses within certain areas. Sometimes it's done for maybe architectural reasons, but the city has some reason that they want to separate this C1 zoning from the rest of the C1 zoning in my example. And so they create these overlay districts. And then in terms of a PD or like a planned development overlay, or sometimes referred to as like a planned unit development in some areas too, what happens there is that you're almost able to create your own zoning code in essence um, out of what's actually there. And so it's really, it's much more favorable. It's much more of a um, advanced and nuanced type of entitlement, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, horrible process either. The good news is that you get to create your own development standards. Now, I'm not saying that you get to put out whatever you want and the city's going to accept it. But the point is, is that you're creating some flexibility in there and that allows you to have more value added as a part of that. So it's a really good process. Right. Like basically everything becomes a negotiation. So Absolutely. if the neighbors are so worried that your zoning allows for, say, a daycare and they're afraid a daycare is going to totally mess up the flow of traffic. So if you say, hey, if we do this PD, neighborhood doesn't want a daycare, we'll exclude that as a possible use in the future. And by the way, I need a little bit more right of way. The city would be, okay, you're developing what we want. We'll give you some right of way. That way you can still stay within our setback. So everything basically becomes a negotiation, but it doesn't mean you get what you want. It means you have to explore what everyone wants and decide what's most important to you. And it's just a give and take process. And it also depends on how you present your concept, right? I mean, the way how you sell the idea to, to the city. Oh, that is so important. So every time, <laughs> every time we go to the city, which I will say our city is very good about trying to get all the players in the room and do like a pre-development um, meeting, we go yeah. with either mock-ups and I'll go on Fiverr and send somebody some pictures and say, give me a digital building that looks like this, or I'll go and try and capture some images that are on the you know internet. And I'll be like, this is what we're trying to go for. This is why we're doing it. This is why it's perfect for the, you know, whatever we're trying to develop in downtown and how it fits within their master plan. I put all the pieces together for them. The most important thing, though, in all of that is that once you build it, that you actually build it like the vision that you created. Because what often happens, especially with real estate investors, and I totally get it, is you're thinking, I'm going to have these cute wrought iron picket fences. I'm going to have this scallops, you know, or gingerbreading architectural features. I'm going to have this beautiful front porch. I'm going to have these small yards, you know, all this stuff. And then you start getting bids and you're in the middle of it. And you're like, oh, we can't afford wrought iron. And you know what? If we just cut that porch <laughs> off, it doesn't add square footage, but it adds cost. And, you know, let's just do hardy everywhere and let's not have any architectural design. And then when you're done, the city's like, they don't trust you anymore. So the oh, most yeah. important thing is that, especially if you're going to be redeveloping in that same city, is that when you create that vision, don't put stuff in there that you don't intend to do. But if you'll just do two or three projects and actually execute on what you do, man, you know, the city is only one component of it. Who you really need on your side are the elected officials um, like city council and your planning and zoning appointed guys, because they're the ones who ultimately approve it. The city can only support or not support you regardless. They present it and your elected officials are the ones who ultimately approve all of these changes in zoning and setbacks and all of that. So th what you want to do is for the city to stand up in front of those guys and say, these guys build what they say they're going to build or you hear the city councilman say, hey, we can trust they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And so that would be my piece of advice. If you're going through the development process, definitely go with the vision, go with actual pictures and then build what you told them you were going to build. No, yeah, that's, so, that, that's so true. They call, that, yeah. they call that value engineering, right? Yeah. Um, after the fact is done is like after you have an approval, then you hear back from them and they'll say, well, we're having to do a little bit of value engineering on this thing, which basically means that they overshot 
and it's become too expensive and now they're dialing it back and you're already kind of too late because you've already sold the vision. Yes. And it's such a fine line because ultimately, you know, we're doing this to support our family and make money. And so it is important that you're able, that you have a good idea of your cost and you're able to balance that. And if you are going to have to make a change, let the city know and tell them what you're going to do to make up for it. So at least they're not surprised by it. Right. No, that's so true though. I think this applies to pretty much everything in business, right? When you say you're going to do something, (laughs) you got to do it. I mean, that's, that's just pure, like, you know, just have integrity. Right. And, you know, but sometimes, you know, you just have to do what you got to do and you have to, you know, if, if it's over budget, but that's what you do and you want to burn the relationship. I mean, sometimes you may have to just commit and do it. Right. Yeah. It's definitely about managing that relationship for sure. For sure. (laughs) So I think we're going to switch gear a little bit. I want to talk about like, you know, as, as land investor, you know, we go and find, you know, a lot of deals and stuff. And as we're getting into more like closer to, you know, the city, the urban areas and stuff, inside these rural stuff, let's say if someone finds a deal, right? Maybe even go through the whole entitlement process. And you know what? They don't have enough budget or, or capital to complete the project, right? But they want to partner up with an investor or another developer. Like, how would you structure the deal or what's your pitch? Yeah, that's an interesting point. So from a person who wants to develop that land, the most expensive part is time, really. And so if you're having to rezone something or re-entitle some, or I guess that's the same thing, rezone, re-entitle it, or you know, any of that, it takes a long time. And depending on your city, that could mean, like I think in LA, it could take two years to get something rezoned here. You know, it's a few months, but the whole time I'm owning that property, I'm probably rezoning. I'm paying architects. I'm paying civil engineers. So the money's adding up and the land's not producing any revenue. So there's definitely value from the person buying the land if they can get it already ready to go. Now, if you're a person, from my perspective, if you're a person who's really good at finding the land, which we partner with some people who are always out there looking for lands and and land in the area that we're looking for, and you want to be in on a development deal, but you have no idea like how to do it. I mean, definitely what you would want to do is identify a developer who is trying to do whatever your land is. And from the beginning, because our deal is our vision is we know what we want the end product to look like. So if you go and design or do architectural plans or get kind of far along in the process and then decide you're going to sell your vision to a developer, you know, it, it should match the developer's vision too. So I would say the old, earlier in the process that you can team up, the better. Now, as far as what does that look like, structure, equity, what? I mean, you could either schedule it if they just want to say, I'll get it this far. And then for a fee of whatever over that, I'll sell it to you. That would be fine. Or we would probably look at it if it was a partnership on an equity basis. So if you've got the land and you have the development cost in it, let's say that's $300,000. If, um, you know, there's no debt on that, that basically comes in as a $300,000 cast infusion. If we're raising, say, $700,000, I should have said $600,000 because then I could, I don't really do public math. Then, you know, (laughs) if I'm bringing $300,000, you're bringing $300,000 and we get the debt on it, then that's like a 50-50 partnership. So it kind of depends on the value of the improvements that you've made. But I definitely think it, I mean, that is an equity contribution. But I do think if you're going to go through the development process and you're targeting offloading that to a developer, you want to be aligned with what their vision is. It's kind of like when we buy houses to flip, because we've done that for 10 years too. And we hear, oh, we've made some upgrades. It's always like, oh God, this isn't going to be good. Because, you know, you're going to go in and they've, you know, we're in an old house in downtown and they've put brown floor tile in and, you know, like vinyl plank flooring and all this stuff that you're like, oh, I got to tear that out and start over. So even though that's totally fine, that's not the vision of the houses that we redevelop or that we um, flip. So you definitely want to do the same thing on the development side is make sure you know who your end target is and get in with them early on rather than waiting till you run out of money and realize you need to try and offload it. 
in terms of in terms of like um like working with the city and everything like that have you ever um entered into any like you know private public you know um agreements where you're kind of getting grant funding or or they're like contributing land or anything like that do you get into that whole situation yeah so we have several programs we have used the match funding program. We're actually doing a building right now. And for our city, they have funding in certain areas for the facade upgrades. So if you change the outside, they'll match fund after you've completed the work and shown on the invoices up to half and whatever they've gotten approved by city council um, for your project. So we've used that on a couple of different projects. We also have a match funding program for fire systems, where if you upgrade your fire systems, they'll do match funding. I never recommend that because <laughs> the bad thing about a fire marshal is they have unwielded power. They have no authority over them. And so even though you're like, oh my gosh, a fire system lets me do more design, helps save lives. The reality is the day you install it, it's not like, and now you've met code. He can come in three hours later and decide he's changed his mind. He wants you to upgrade this and add Knox boxes here. And everything Mm -hmm. that you do with the fire system is really expensive. And they always have the authority to say, or I'm going to cite you and kick all your tenants out. So I hope they don't listen to this podcast, but I do not ever recommend that you upgrade fire systems beyond what you have to do because they are the one entity that no one seems to control. And you look like the bad guy because you just want people to die in fires if you have any objection to whatever their request is. Um, And then our city also has programs where they'll give lands. They put out what they call uh, requests for proposal. And they'll have bought, like, this is typical in a city that's doing like a major um, revitalization of an area. They'll typically go in and buy either a bunch of boarded up buildings, or maybe it's the most um, prominent building that's not being utilized. It's vacant. They'll go in and buy it and they'll either um, get that to an investor who will then revitalize it. Or if it's land, they might scrape the land so that it starts from scratch They'll get the zoning and the infrastructure in place, and then they'll do a request for proposal. And people can just put bids in on what they would build there. And then the city will look at all the proposals, and they'll pick the one to give the land to for free. So it's like, that's amazing, free land. But it kind of goes back to what we said earlier, where the land part isn't the most expensive part of a development. The time piece is. Mm. So unfortunately, the amount of time it takes a city to convey land from the city to the new owner is a brutal. So we don't do the request for proposals. We try and buy up all the land around it and know something will be developed there in the future. Um, But it's definitely something that they offer. It's something that we've kind of steered clear of because I don't want to wait for a year or 18 months for the city attorney to get everything just like he wants. And then if you have an attorney on your side, like it's just a disaster. It's like, let me just pay for the land and let's move on like a normal real estate transaction. (laughs) No, but it's so true though, Katie. Like I think what we try to talk about in this podcast is really just to really focus and and get to the nitty gritty of of your area, like of the city and stuff. Because at least for me, right, I used to kind of just jump around a lot. I mean, I still do with certain with those real, you know, vacant land because you know they're everywhere, right? And they're pretty easy. But when you really want to start doing bigger projects like Katie here, <laughs> then you really need to specialize and really go down and understand who you need to talk to, who's in charge, you know, what needs to be done and just really, really understand your city and what you can do. Cause there's a lot of, um, when you, once you kind of understand the rules, then you can play the game. Right. You know? So that's how I look at it. Exactly. I totally agree. Like you have got to become an expert in something. And if it, if you're just going to stick with land, then become an expert in the type of land that you're going to flip. If you're going to do development, go and meet with the city, have lots of conversations with them. And it's intimidating because even when I say call the city, like, what does that mean? You know, right. they have thousands of employees, just the, of who, where do I even start? Which department who, do I Yeah, call? who is the city? <laughs> and every city names their departments differently. So it's not even like I can say, oh, just go to your city and ask for development services or ask for, you know, like every city is a little different. And so it's super intimidating. So the best thing to do is just get in there and act dumb. 
I mean, even <laughs> even when we go meet with them today, I try and act as dumb as I can. Like I'm totally clueless here. You tell me everything yeah. you know. Definitely don't go in there wanting to look like you're supposed to know something. Just right. go in there and be dumb. And uh, I found in the different cities. So I've been, you know, in Houston, San Antonio, some suburbs of Houston, and then in Bryan, that if um, the city employees, um, you know, they're just trying to do a job. Sure. And they get beat up a lot because yeah. what they're trying to do the pain they create is in opposition to the developer or the person who comes in, who's trying to build a fence in their backyard. And so they get beat up on a lot. So right. if you can just go in there humbled and like, I don't know anything. If you just seem like, you know, everything, just tell me everything, you know, like that's yeah. a probably better way to navigate. Now I do yell at them sometimes and we have <laughs> lots of confrontation, but <laughs> you know, that's kind of part of it too. You got to balance that, but sure. definitely don't go in there acting like, you know, more than you do. And I just feel like if you're doing what they want, they'll find a way to help you. That's a yeah, really good I, tip. That. I, I was going to say, I think that, I think in the terms of redevelopment, it's probably different than what I'm about to say, but let's just say for like subdivision tract home type development, you have a developer that comes in like that. I think part of the problem at the core is, is that the interest of many developers is to get it, get in, get it built and get out. And it's, you know, however long, two years, five years, whatever their, their horizon is, that's what they're looking at. But the city is responsible for looking at implementing a general plan or a comprehensive plan that's 25 to 30 years in the future. And while it does seem like they're very similar goals, the reality is, is they're very distinctly different because the city is going to be living with that development for the next, again, 30 plus years, whereas many developers are going to be in and out and gone, and they may not even be in business in 30 years. And so that, that difference is, uh, I think, at the core of what creates a lot of, um, a lot of the, the push and pull in the situation. I do think that redevelopment projects are, are definitely different because, you know, redevelopment this comes with a different sensibility and a different passion and, and a different goal in mind. Same thing with like historic preservation as well. And so I think it, it is a little bit different in that sense, but for like, you know, a lot of developers, probably the majority of them, it's just a different time horizon. And I think that kind of creates a big chunk of the issues at times, at least in terms of the confrontations that can exist. I and then totally on top of that, that, though, it's what you're saying before about how the rules are all different, but what, I mean, you've probably seen this too, is that, you could have the same rule and you can have two different planners looking at it and you get two different interpretations. Very frustrating. And so then where are you at? <laughs> yeah. yeah, very frustrating. Yeah, very, yeah. very frustrating. And that's why when I said earlier, like you can't really be an expert on the code because just because you've read it doesn't mean that that's the way it'll be implemented because everybody has different interpretations of what that is or different areas that they focus on. I mean, you know, they, the city, it may be in the code, but the city may not even enforce it. So it's a non-event. And then they go to a training and they're like, hey, we should focus on this more. And then you as the developer who's done this over and over again is suddenly surprised. So, um, right. yeah, it's it's definitely different. And, you know, I mean, the, the city employees trying to do their job, they're going to get their paycheck the same way. And their personality is generally different than somebody, you know, like me, who's just a small business person trying to figure out it has to be very scrappy. And if I don't get this thing moving and producing income, like it's detrimental to my livelihood. And so just those two different perspectives or sources of cash flow create a natural conflict. And so recognizing that and trying to maneuver through that, um, just knowing it, I think is helpful. No, I think that's very, very true. And it goes back to your point before about relationships as well, you know, and having those relationships at the city, understanding who the, the right players are, whether it be elected or appointed officials, that's going to be obviously very important as well, especially in something like, like redevelopment, because redevelopment tends to be become really political because everybody wants to see an improvement. Everybody wants to see it. And then all the elected appointments want to be able to say, look, I did that. And they want to say that I had a hand in that and they want it to be a feather in their cap. And so it becomes a very ego driven type of situation for a lot of elected and appointed officials. And so you end up having to kind of, as a developer, you have to end up um, trying to appease a, a lot of different people. And then at the same time, appease your budget at the same time. It's not easy. Yes. And you also have this other component of that where the people who are living in that community 
generally people don't like change period, but not only are you changing it, but you're driving up prices of their land and it's changing their lifestyle. So, so even, you know, like everyone says, oh, we want this place to be beautiful. Even the neighbor does until he realizes that that negatively impacts him. And he really didn't have a problem with it to start with. So like, there's just a lot of different perspectives, always pushing and pulling. And sometimes I think is like the redeveloper. We sometimes underappreciate the pressure that the city staffers are getting because they're getting phone calls from all different angles and they all totally have a different point of view of what the right answer is. It's a great point. Do you end up ever having to get involved with like um, community outreach meetings, you know, meeting with community members, having those kind of things as directed by city staff? Yeah, I have. Um, I don't do it as much with our downtown projects now, because again, we're kind of doing what the city wants and what the neighborhood wants for the most part. Um, But I did that a lot when we were doing the assisted living redevelopment. We had lots of HOA meetings, neighborhood meetings, um, combined city plus neighborhood meetings. um, And we had lots of city council meetings. And uh, the one thing that I learned is that a politician will lie flat to your face (laughs) and then go and vote and vote totally different. So, you know, like you got to get out there and you want to try and make your case But just know that a lot of people's personalities are not going to create conflict in a public setting. That doesn't mean when it goes to time to vote that you're going to get what they may have indicated they're supporting. (laughs) Right, right. Very, very good. Makes sense. Yeah, no, that's so true, though. I mean, you know, there's, there's so much going on, right? Like when it comes down to these kind of things. And like you said, the relationship is so crucial and so important. Yeah. Learned so much from from this episode, man. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when you're dealing at that level, you're dealing with a lot of emotional driven decisions. Exactly. And and so rational thought or, you know, like black and white doesn't even exist because it's, you know, when people deal with emotions, you you never you can't predict what the outcome is going to be. I used to think everything is black and white, but as I get older, that's nothing is. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I think um well we're getting the end toward the end of the show. And you know, before we go, Katie, like what's next for you? I mean, you know you're super busy, you do a lot of big projects in downtown Bryant. Um, what's next for you? Yeah. So we currently have one development that's in construction. We have one that's going to permitting. We have one that's going to construction drawings. We have a land that's acquired that we're going to build on. We're working on two townhome redevelopments. And all of that is in our downtown. Nice. Um, but, yeah. And so, you know, what's allowed us to fill the pipeline so full is we finally, we're also the GC on all of our projects. We finally hired someone to do all the project management instead of us doing it ourselves. And that's really opened up our ability to focus because either you can be on site working on a job or you can be looking for the next deal. It's super hard to do both. And so now that we've gotten that lined out, we're now hiring again for a part-time person to help with the ops side because you can just get so weighed down and just the marketing. Now we have tenants. We need to make sure they're happy managing property managers and marketing the new products that are coming out and trying to find commercial tenants um, and residential tenants for the mixed use. And so there turns out there's a lot of administrative stuff that goes beyond just trying to get the building built. So now we're trying to help someone who can manage that part. And then what I see in the future is what we kind of alluded to earlier, trying to find similar markets of what we're already developing in on the earlier honeymoon phase and maybe even kind of creating a building that we love the most out of all the ones that we're doing that we can basically repurpose very simply that has a high impact in a redeveloping community. Um, I think that will help stretch the development costs if we can kind of reuse the same building. And if it's one of those high impact ones that communities love and we're on the honeymoon phase, like it just seems like a simple answer. So it'll probably be teaming up with people who are in revitalizing downtown to have the know of where the land is and trying to do what we're doing in downtown Bryan and other downtown communities. Nice. And you're holding all these projects, right? Like long-term, hold yeah, cash so, flow. 
Yeah. So we have to balance that because it turns out developments are expensive to keep because they suck your money up and it can take three or four years before you can refinance and get it out. And so we do both. So all of our single family, like townhomes, patio homes, anything that we can do an individual house and sell, we sell. So those will, um, you know, develop and sell to create cash flow to go into the next development project. So it's a balance of trying to keep both going. So we continue producing new income that we can then rest into one of our developments because, you know, it takes the exact same amount of energy and effort for us to develop a building that we own 100% of as it does for a building that we own 5% of. And so our goal is to own as much as possible to eliminate the number of headaches because the idea of having a hundred of these buildings that I own 10% of each sounds like a nightmare. Like I'd much rather try to own 30 to 50% and own way less than a hundred. So that's kind of our goal is to generate as much cash flow to own as much of the developments as we can. Cool. Cool. Well, I have one more question before okay. uh, before we go. Now, what do you think about our current market? Like, what do you think, in your opinion? Uh, I know it's a loaded question. In let's say the next year. Yeah, I think I need meds. Um, <laughs> it, it's super. It is definitely a super stressful time because it just feels so uncertain. Like you have such intelligent people saying a correction is coming and you have such intelligent people saying that it's got to be minor because the economic differences are so unique. So what we're trying to do is just minimize our risk, understand it and minimize it. And so one of our two biggest risks are interest rate sensitivity, because generally when we're constructing, the rate is floating. Once it goes into permanent financing, then it gets fixed. So we're working with banks to try and fix it on the front end, even through construction, or we do lots of interest rate sensitivity to see how much room and make sure we have enough room. And then obviously the other one is construction cost, And it's, it's crazy right now because yeah. it would be easy to say, but if affordability goes down or goes up, no, no, no. Affordability goes down because the price of homes are going up. Right. Your renter pool is going to get stronger and your rent should go up. So that sure. should be favorable to us, right? right? But so what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to go up 5%, 10%? And so now you're trying to model on what you're hoping comes true. So it's definitely, it's definitely a tricky time. I think that we're definitely going to continue to see inflation. Um, lumber prices are at the moment actually down off their highs. So we, um, I told you we're under construction on a project. Mm-hmm. We bid it before we poured concrete. Our lumber people said, hey, hold off on buying lumber. We think prices are going to come down. We just bought the lumber and it was $20,000 less than when wow. we quoted it before. So that's impactful. Now, yeah. it's still over budget because it's above back when we set the budget, what you know prices were trending at then. So I do think it'll still go up. I just think it probably will moderate a little bit. I don't think it's going to go back down much, but the real kicker is the labor. Um, I think if labor um, costs continue to go up, those never tend to come down. And yeah. so if is that going to cause stagflation potentially? So my, my crystal ball says, hell if I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I agree with everything you said. I mean, the this brand new subdivision, well, here in Las Vegas, I mean, they're like building crazy, right? So like just down the street from, from my house, there's like this subdivision with all these brand new ranch houses, right? I was like looking at the billboard like the last probably five months. It went from 700 and it changed it to 800 and then 900. And then I just looked at yesterday, it went to 1.3. Oh it's crazy. Gosh, that's crazy. You know, yeah. what we're doing to protect ourselves is because I had a crazy uncle once who told me, you know, all you have to do to make money is have money when nobody else does. And I thought, oh, he's so brilliant. And I thought, but <laughs> the only people who tend to have money in real estate when nobody else does are the people who aren't in the market yet. So when you think about the 08 crash, all of us jump into the real estate market we're geniuses. We've got money. We didn't have the bad effects of it crashing. But when you're in the market to have money, when the market goes down to buy those favorable assets is much tougher. So what we're doing is we're allocating in cash reserves, at least 12 months of principal and interest or six months of 100% operating. 
vibrations, because I think what kills people in a downturn is you just don't have the money to hang on. It's easy to say, just hang on. The prices are going to go up. They're going to come back. But if you don't have the money to sustain that, you know, cash is king when times are bad. So we're trying to sock away as much cash in all of our different projects. Now with development, that's trickier. That's different. There's no cash being generated until it's being leased. So you can't sock the money away. So it's definitely us trying to make sure we don't get in over our heads. (laughs) Well, I think this episode has been amazing. I know you have a lot of things and you're a busy, busy, busy woman. So we don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, If for a listener, whoever wants to kind of get in touch with you, I want to learn more about what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, definitely follow me on Facebook. I'm at Renovation Wranglers on Instagram. I'm at Renovation Wranglers. And um, you can message me, DM me through there. If you follow me, I'll respond. (laughs) <laughs> sounds good well i think we got um everything covered right mike you got absolutely more? yeah yeah, yeah we did and more it was great this is fun <laughs> i'm always nervous like what are we going to talk about so you guys i am nervous easy. i am nervous too every time we have an interview i always get kind of nervous but i think we're getting better right mike i think so yeah i know you are i'm not i don't know we'll see <laughs> <laughs> well y'all made right, this me- really easy i have no idea if your people like it from my perspective it was easy to do (laughs) that's great yeah i mean mike is always so like i always tell him like he's just so smooth you just keep talking and looping and looping and me i just try to think like what what should i say next or what what question should i ask you know (laughs) well this one was easy because it's just you know when it's something that you've been doing for so long and you talk about all the time you know it's just kind of flows out of you it's just like you know good or bad it flows out of you one way or the other you know right good for me to talk to like somebody that's a developer too because what I always found is that I worked for local you know I worked for government agencies and stuff but I was always an outsider there because I always saw everything really more from the investment side of the equation which is really one of the reasons why I ended up ultimately leaving Um, but you know for me it's the thing of when you know it so well that just kind of flows right out of you that that kind of thing so either that or I'm a good BS artist take your pick (laughs) Hey, you're easy to talk to. And it's nice to have someone on the other end who understands it. It helps kind of prompt thought that I don't even, I take for granted knowing. So absolutely. No, absolutely. for sure. All right, Katie, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. I get to see you, Eric. Nice to meet you, yes. Mike. I appreciate nice y'all giving me the opportunity. You. Of course. Right. We'll take be in care. touch. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, There's a lot of value in this and I hope you can take these actionable items and apply it to your real estate land investment business. Uh, If you feel like we brought some value to you, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This will allow the algorithm to kind of push a, a podcast up higher and get more reach so that we can help more people and also share with your friends, you know, your investor friends or whoever are kind of in that investing space. Uh, until next time, have a good one.